0: Cove online we are so glad that you're joining us today for this sermon we hope and pray that this message encourages you that you learn something that you enjoy it but more than that we just pray that god would move in your life that he would reveal some more of himself to you today if you would like to respond to this message in any way you can contact us at sheltercovelife.com have an amazing rest of your day Good to see you all. Do me a favor. Take your Bibles if you don't mind. Join me in Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4. We are in the home stretch with this little epistle to the Colossian church. Find verse 7 when you get to chapter 4. I'm going to take you all the way to the end of the book. Tonight we are landing the plane. So as you're finding Colossians 4 verse 7, let me ask you a question. When you go to the movies, how do you know when the movie's over? Typically, when, when, okay, when the credits start to roll, right? When those final credits roll, that's usually when you know, all right, movie over, time to go. That's when people historically, they get up, they pack their stuff, they start to move out. Now, lately, we've got some movies. Uh, I'm thinking of these Marvel films that have these post-credit scenes, and you know, you're supposed to stick around so you don't miss out on some tidbit, some some uh, Easter egg there. Uh, maybe a movie's got a hot soundtrack, and there's a hit song playing that you like, and so you sit in your seat, and you enjoy you know, Lady Gaga or whatever it is to each his own. Anyway, you typically know final credits roll, movie over, time to go. A lot of people have the same perspective when it comes to the epistles because when you get to the end of the epistles, typically what you've got is called the final greetings. In fact, that may be a heading on the text, the passage that we're looking at tonight in your Bible. Take a scan, look at verse seven to 11, just kind of look that over. What do you see? You see a bunch of names. Paul's given some shout outs to some people. And a lot of folks, they get to that. They've enjoyed this book. They've gotten the doctrine out of it. They've gotten the moral instruction out of it. They get to these names and they're like, oh, well, that's, that doesn't involve me. That's not, I'm not a Nesimus, okay? This is for somebody else. I Movie over, time to go. Even pastors, when they teach these books, often they'll skip this. They'll skip the initial greeting at the beginning and they'll just pick it up, you know, four or five verses in. Get to the good stuff, right? The meat. Not the greetings. So, what do you say? Should I, just, should I just skip this part? Should we just dismiss tonight? You know, you can get out of here early. We can hit Red Robin, whatever. You know, should we do that? I tell you what, I tell you, what, let's not do that. Why don't we just see what God has for us? You think it's possible that God would have something for us in the final greetings? Oh, I do. You know why? Because all scripture is given by inspiration and is profitable for doctrine for reproof for correction for training in righteousness that the person of god may be thoroughly equipped for every good work you believe that tonight so i think god's got something for us we've got a list of names here there are 12 in fact not a bad number jesus had 12 guys paul lists 12 names right here including his own and what we're going to see as we march through these quickly is that each of these names represents a principle for the body of Christ. How many of you know Christianity is not just a bunch of theological principles? Christianity is not just a bunch of moral instructions. Now it includes that stuff, but it's also people. The body of Christ is people. And the people listed here represent things that you and I are to emulate if we are to fit into the body as God has designed. What I want you to do tonight is to take these names, take these lives that I'm gonna go into, and I want you to lay them over your life just as an overlay and see how you match up and what adjustments you may need to make in accordance with the principles represented right here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, give us your grace, give us your wisdom. As we look to your word, help us to learn, help us to glean, help us to extract whatever it is you've got for us, even in the final greetings of this little book. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's look at these 12 names. The first name that Paul references here is a guy named Tychicus, Tychicus. Now, some people pronounce it Tychicus. I'm not going to do that. Sounds weird. I'm going to go with Tychicus, all right? And I like this guy. He's mentioned five times in Paul's writings. And I'm a fan. You know why? Because he is always there when times get tough. Tychicus, he's always there. Here's what Paul says about him. Verse 7. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I want you to underline servant. I've sent him to you, meaning From prison, that's where Paul is. He's in Rome in jail. He's writing this letter. And he says, I've sent him for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Now, this guy is kind of a gopher. Paul sends him on errands. This is the guy, he's mentioned in Ephesians uh, and right here as somebody that Paul would send to take care of a need, a physical need, uh, perhaps the arranging of money, the acquisition of, of resources, clothing, et cetera. He's mentioned near the end of Titus. That's, that's near the end of Paul's ministry, his life. At the end of 2 Timothy, right before Paul dies, in his final words, he mentions this guy. How'd you like to be among the last words of the apostle Paul? That means he was special. And we read about him in the book of Acts. And when Paul is is leaving to go on his third missionary journey, Tychicus goes with him and he's going to Jerusalem. They they hate Paul. They want to kill him. So he knows that this is a dangerous journey. And yet he, he accompanies Paul because he is a servant. And this is the principle of Tychicus. In your notes, be a servant. We are to be servants. Jesus modeled that for us. If anybody could have been master and 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 have authority and he did, it was Jesus, but he he humbled himself to being a servant and demonstrated that for us. And Tychicus takes that very seriously. He's always there serving. Whenever it gets tough, he never speaks a word, he never writes anything. He's a, he is deeds not words that's Tychicus you can count on him he's no showboat he's not a great public speaker he's not flashy he's not Peter he's not Stephen he's not even Barnabas he serves wherever God needs him whenever God needs him for as long as God needs him and he doesn't need the limelight he's happy to work in the shadows he's happy to not get any acclaim he gets the job done if he were a football player he'd be an offensive lineman that's Tychicus he lays it down, he gets it done. We are to be like that. Now, you may not have the same skill set as this guy, but you're to have the same mindset. Amen? He he thought of himself as, as as low before the Lord. I am lowly and I will serve. He does not need a claim. And, and that's how we are to think of ourselves, not too highly. Uh, Jim Elliott, famous missionary. Uh, to the Alca Indians lost his life, he said the following. He said, we are nobodies telling everybody about somebody who can save anybody. <laughs> Amen? That's us, and that's Tychicus. All right, so that's the first one. Paul goes on, verse nine, he says, and with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who's one of you? They will tell of everything that has taken place here. So here's the second name, Onesimus. You might remember that name if you're familiar with the book of Philemon. He features prominently in that book. And Philemon was a guy, he was one of the early leaders at the church of Colossae. And Paul writes to him in that letter, Philemon, as you learn in that letter, had a bond servant, a slave. Now when we think of slavery, we think of like civil war and the atrocity of slavery. Slavery in the New Testament is different, okay? Uh, People entered into it willingly uh, to pay off debt that they could not possibly pay and so they would enter into slavery willfully to pay debt and so this man was the property in order to pay debt of this other guy Philemon but Onesimus this bond servant runs away he doesn't stick it out he leaves his master he, he run, he's a runaway slave okay he makes it as far as Rome and it's in Rome he gets apprehended he gets arrested and they throw him in jail and he ends up in jail with the apostle Paul. Now, how's that for the sovereignty of God? You run away from your master and you end up with a friend of your master who happens to be the apostle Paul. Any chance you think he would hear the gospel in that jail cell? You suppose that might happen? Indeed, it did. And Onesimus comes to faith in Christ. Paul leads him to the Lord and he develops a spiritual life and a maturity in prison with Paul. And when they let him out, Paul sends him back to his master, to Philemon, and he he sends him carrying a couple of things. He carries with him to Colossae this book that we are finishing up tonight. The book of Colossians went back with Onesimus. In addition, he sends back with him a little note to his master that became the book of Philemon. And so Onesimus becomes a, a transporter of scripture. Now, in Philemon, Verse 10, here's what Paul says about him to Philemon. He says, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. And he's doing a little play on words here because the name Onesimus means useful. That's what it means. And so Paul is using that and he's saying he was once useless, and now he's living up to his name, he's useful. Now, what what made the change? Jesus made the change. He came to faith in Christ. Now, this is the principle of Onesimus. In your notes, you were transformed to be useful. Until Jesus got a hold of this bondservant, he was useless, but now that the Holy Spirit is in him and he knows Jesus, he is useful. See, you were useless to God in your sin. You were useless in your previous nature, but God transformed you. When you came to faith in Christ, his spirit indwelled you and changed you from the inside out. And now he can use you. Because Paul writes in Ephesians, he says, we, speaking of Christians, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. And so it's only through Christ that we can be useful to God. There are works that he has for you that you could never have done without him. You need his spirit in you. And so he is useful, and we are to become useful. We are to be Onesimus, all right? He moves on in verse 10. He says, Aristarchus, this is person number three. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. Now, here's the Aristarchus principle. I'm gonna give it to you, and then I'm gonna explain it. In your notes, Aristarchus teaches us to be loyal. Be loyal, all right? Aristarchus is in prison with Paul. Now, in Acts chapter 19... We read that Paul is in a city called Ephesus, all right? Now, I've been to Ephesus, ancient Ephesus. It's in modern-day Turkey. It is this amazing city of ruins. It's incredible. If you've ever been there, you know what I'm talking about. And as we toured this city, we saw this, this plot of land, and there was nothing on it. But the guide told us that once upon a time, on that piece of land, there stood one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. You've heard of the seven wonders of the world? This was one of them. It was called the Temple of Diana or the Temple of Artemis, a Greek goddess. And the cottage industry in ancient Ephesus was the worship of Artemis, the goddess associated with Ephesus. And there was idolatry that was, it was the prime industry of the city. Well, then Paul comes to town. Paul preaches the gospel. There is a massive revival that takes place. And people come to faith in Christ. And that gospel presentation single-handedly destroys the idolatry industry of Ephesus. You think he ticked a few people off? All the idol makers were going out of business. People were destroying their idols. They were burning their witchcraft books. And everybody that made money off such things was very furious with Paul. And a riot broke out. There were riots in the street. I always thought that would be the mark of success for a preacher to go somewhere and preach a message and have somebody get so mad they'd flip a car over and light it on fire or something like that? Hasn't happened to me yet. Fingers crossed. Anyway, (laughs) people are like, it's probably gonna happen, Pastor Scott. Anyway, what happened was it got so bad that there was a, 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 a demonstration that took place in this huge amphitheater there in Ephesus. And I've been in that amphitheater. My wife and I led worship in that amphitheater. But it was there that 20,000 of these Ephesians gathered, and they are violent, and they are chanting. Uh, they're practically demon-possessed, screaming at the top of their lungs, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, and they drag into the middle of that brouhaha this guy, Aristarchus, because he's a companion of Paul. And they bring him in, and they take out their anger and their vitriol on him. Now, He knew this was coming. He'd seen this boiling. He'd seen this coming to a head. He could have left town, but he didn't. He stayed put. Why? Because he was loyal to Paul and to Christ. He said, I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to stand my ground. If if you're going to take the hit, Paul, I'm going to take the hit with you. He was a loyal man. And isn't that the Christian life? We don't get to just stand around and, and sing all these sweet worship songs in the sunshine on a spring day. You know, sometimes we've got to take it. We've got to go into the lion's den. We've got to stand our ground. We got to lay our body down like the secret service, willing to take a bullet for for the president. We've got to be willing to do whatever it takes and take whatever grief and guff we got to take in the name of Jesus Christ for whom we live. And that is the Aristarchus principle right there. Paul moves on. He says, not only him, he says, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, Concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. A couple of guys mentioned in this line. Let's start with Mark. He's the cousin of Barnabas. We know Barnabas is Paul's ministry partner, frequent traveling companion. Mark is his younger cousin. We see him mentioned in the book of Acts. In Acts 12, he joins them on a missionary journey. By Acts 15, we read that Mark had abandoned Paul and Barnabas, just, just left them in the lurch. He's gone. And that causes a rift. We don't know why he left. Uh, could be he was homesick. Could be he was, he was scared. Could be he was bored. We really don't know. But he left them in the lurch. And this causes a problem between Paul and Barnabas. Because we read later on in Acts 15, these two guys are going to go back and revisit all the, all the cities, all the churches that they had been to. Barnabas goes, you know what? Let's bring Mark with us. And Paul's like, no, 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 no. That mama's boy, you kidding me? I'm not bringing him. That's not Nose kid? No, he's trouble. I don't want anything to do with him. And this causes a rift. And we read in Acts 15, 38, there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from one another. The Beatles are breaking up because of this Yoko, okay? This, this Mark. <laughs> one of the most famous disagreements in scripture. Paul says, no way, Jose. And you don't see Mark's name again from Acts 16 until Colossians 4. And how does Paul... Describe him. He says, if you see him, welcome him. He doesn't sound mad anymore, does he? How come? We get a little context in 1 Timothy 4. He tells Timothy, hey, get Mark and bring him to me. He is useful to me in ministry. There's that word useful again. Another useful man redeemed over time. What happened? Well, this is the principle in your notes. Mark teaches us that you are meant to mature over time. Have you ever matured over time? Huh? Huh? I hope you have. I'm sure that you have. You ever do anything boneheaded in your youth? Huh? How about when, even since you were a Christian, have you done some stupid stuff? Man, I have. Man, I think back on things I've done, even in ministry, and I just, I think of who I worked with, and I'm like, oh my goodness. I, 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 I can't believe that I did that. I can't believe I acted that way, said that. I hope that they don't think I'm a loser. I wish they could see me now. They might be disappointed anyway. <laughs> this is what, this is what God does. He, we are intended to mature over time. Listen, even every, every kid matures somewhat over time. You, you, you're like, I can't wait for my kids to mature over, over time. My kids, you know, they, they do dumb things from time to time. You may have heard about my youngest son last week, last weekend. He had a little mishap. He made a decision, was not the best decision he, he's ever made. Uh, he swallowed, wait for it, a needle he swallowed a needle you say pray tell how did that happen well my daughter Delaney is a bit of a seamstress she's got a sewing machine in her room and the, the, the needle in the sewing machine broke the tip broke off and so she wanted to throw it away it's useless and, uh, but she didn't want it to rip the bag in her wastebasket. so she took the needle and the, the, the broken tip and she put them in a water bottle Okay, now now before you judge her understand she was trying to be responsible she put the cap on the bottle tightly and she put the water bottle in the trash because who in the right mind is going to drink out of a water bottle from the trash can enter my son Grayson 11 years old he finds his way into his sister's bedroom she's not there it's a hot day he's looking around he's thirsty Does he go down to the refrigerator where there's cold, filtered water? No, he sees the trash can and he thinks, that looks good. And he downs that entire bottle, every drop. My daughter comes in, he goes, hey, Lainey, what was in that bottle? She goes, what bottle? Where did you get that? And she goes, what have you done? There was a needle in there. She looks in it, there's no needle in the bottle. Now she takes him downstairs, tells me what happened. And I go, get your shoes on, let's go. We're going to the ER. And we went to the ER, Grayson and I. We were there all night on Friday. He had multiple x-rays. He had a CT scan. At 3 a.m., they come to us. And by the way, I'm asking him. I look over at him. I go, kid, are you ever going to do this again? He goes, I can't make any promises. (laughs) Lord, help us. At 3 a.m., they come to us. They say, okay, the needle's in his stomach. Uh, but we don't have a pediatric GI specialist. You're gonna have to go to Roseville right now. And they're gonna stick a tube down and grab that thing and extract it. So my wife comes up there, we drive to Roseville. We get there at 4.30 in the morning. They do another x-ray and he, they're prepping him for the procedure. The doctor comes in at the last minute and says, hold it, hold it. The needle's not in his stomach anymore. It's in his intestine. His intestine, What What, what, what do we? What do we? what do we do? He goes, you're going to have to have him x-rayed every seven hours and we're just going to have to track it. He's going to have to pass it. Oh, oh my gosh. And so we take him back home and we have him x-rayed every seven hours and we watch this needle do this Lombard Street thing through the kid's gut until Sunday night. I'm with the other kids at a pool party. My wife is with Grayson at the x-ray at the hospital and she sends me a picture of his intestines clean. The needle's gone. He'd passed it. Thank God. And so, you know, I'm thinking they're going to come straight home. But an hour later, I get a call. And she's decided, spur of the moment, she's going to the pet store. And to celebrate, she buys him a bearded dragon. (laughs) Yeah, let's reward the kid, you know? It's this lizard, man. And uh, so they bring this lizard home. And he was 50% off. And he loves crickets. And his name is Needles. Okay? (laughs) So that's... Now, my prayer is that the kid matures over time, okay? And that he hasn't learned that, you know, if you swallow needles, you get pets. Anyway, God can use you no matter what you've done. I think think Grayson's got a bright future, okay? Notice the other man mentioned, what is it that brought about this maturity, this change in Mark? Well, there's another man mentioned, Barnabas. And we learn from Barnabas because of what we know about Barnabas. In your notes, here's what we learn. You are to patiently encourage others, patiently encourage others. Here's what we know about him. He is the sort, Barnabas, who sticks with the disreputable and the immature to see them through to their greatest potential, Uh, not just with Mark. Mark's his cousin. He's going to go get that boy and and challenge him gently and hone him and shape him and, and disciple him. But Barnabas has already done that with Paul. See, Paul didn't used to be Paul. He was Saul of Tarsus. He was the persecutor. He he arranged for Christians to be put to death. The first martyr, Stephen, because of Paul, he died. Okay, you can imagine his reputation was mud after his conversion. But it was Barnabas that stayed alongside him. And we see Paul develop and it's at Antioch. They're both sent out in ministry. I guarantee you they were known then as Barnabas and Saul. And it wasn't until later as, as Saul was raised up into Paul and Barnabas humbly steps back and lets God elevate his apostle. This is who this man is. He gently challenges and encourages and is patient with people that they reach their full potential. Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, you who are mature, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness that's the way it's supposed to work in the body amen that that's how it worked in my life thank god there was somebody who was patient with me and then we read about a guy in verse 11 jesus who is called justice jesus called justice apparently this man's name is jesus he's one of only two people in the new testament Uh, our lord and this guy here and apparently he didn't feel he could carry that name there's humility there and so he goes by justice which means righteous And what do we know about him? It goes on to say that he's included among these, the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And they've been a comfort to me. Uh, He's a man of the circumcision. That means he's Jewish. He's a Jewish believer. Paul says he's a fellow worker for the kingdom of God. All right, that means he's not concerned with the things of this world. He doesn't care about the temporary. He wants to invest in the eternal, the kingdom of God. What do I focus on now that's gonna last forever? Let me tell you, there's only three things that last forever in this world. There's the glory of God. There is the creation of God in in the form of the souls of people. And there's the word of God. And someone who is kingdom-minded takes all three and unifies them, okay? And so the principle here in your notes is that this guy, Justice, represents uh, the principle of being heaven-minded, we are to be heaven minded. You focus on what is eternal. You take the word of God, you place it in the hearts of people for the glory of God. You are not attached to the temporal, to the things of this earth. That's justice, okay? And then we meet another guy. His name is Epaphras. Epaphras, uh, he is an apostolic delegate to the church of sorts. We've seen him before in this book. Chapter one, he's an evangelist, chapter two, he's a teacher. Here, he's a prayer warrior. Look at verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you, uh, which means he's he's with them. He's not removed from them. He he lives among them. Uh, A servant of of Christ Jesus, okay? That means he knows who he works for. Listen, I'm a pastor at this church. Technically, I don't work for you. Who do I work for? I serve Jesus Christ. You got to know who your master is. He understood who he reported to directly. And uh, it says that he greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. I want you to underline prayers. Why? That you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Epaphras is praying that this people, the Colossians in all of life, that they would have a confidence and an obedience to God. And that ought to be the prayer of every leader, every pastor. I guarantee you that is the prayer of Pastor Jeremy, of me, of Pastor Ed, of Pastor James, for all of you, that you be assured of the will of God and obedient to the will of God in all areas of life, whether you're a husband, a wife an employee an employer a son a daughter you come under the auspices of the duty to god and the principle in your notes is that you are to be prayerful he prays for these people he prays for them verse 13 he says for i bear him witness that he has worked hard that phrase worked hard in the greek it translates uh, to have a deep pain now a lot of pastors would say that their people give them a deep pain all right But what this means is, what is it? It's a burden. He's a burden for them. Why? He says, it's for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. He's praying fervently. Look, errant teaching is sweeping into the church at this time. You've got Gnosticism. You've got other things. And he's burdened for them. He's constantly praying for them. He's lifting them up. He's asking God to intervene. He's asking for divine protection for them. He's asking for wisdom for them, for boldness for them. I work with a lot of young adults and they go off. They're transient. You know, they move on in life. They go to college. They go join some ministry. They go into some other thing. And I, I follow where they're going. I look at, I get online. I look at the university they're going to. I see what church they're attending in that town out there somewhere. I check out the ministry. Sometimes those things have a little goofy uh, theology. And so I pray for them. I can't control where they go. I try to speak into them while they're under my shepherding. And then they go off and I just pray for them. I pray fervently for them. And that's what leaders do. And so we're to be prayerful. And then in verse 14, he mentions a name that you might know. He says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. Now, we know Luke, don't we? He wrote the gospel of Luke. He's often referred to as a physician. He was a medical doctor. That was his trade. He is a specialized person. He's got a specialized ability, okay? And so the principle here in your notes is that you are to leverage your ability. Luke was a physician. He wrote the gospel of Luke, uh, and that is a very detailed gospel by comparison to the others. He is meticulous. He is a man of detail. I would hope that a doctor would be a man who is interested in details, I mean, that's what you want in a doctor, right? You don't want a guy going, "Yeah, well, you know, that needle's in there somewhere." We don't, know. we don't really know. You want specificity, right? Luke is a man who deals in details, and uh, he carefully investigates everything. He writes in L- Luke one. He says, "I have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. I too decided to write an orderly account." He also wrote the book of Acts. He knew Paul, he knew Peter, he knew Mary, he knew John the Baptist. He interviewed people as he wrote and he used his specialized ability and transferred it into the context of ministry. God gifted him uniquely and he applied it in a ministerial fashion because that's how God designed him. He was leveraging the way that God made him and God used him to write 52 chapters of the Old Testament. Are you leveraging your abilities? You say, Pastor Scott, I don't have any abilities. I don't believe you. Everybody can do something for the Lord. You have an ability. You know how you find out what that is? You have a gift. You find it out by serving. You jump in and you try different things out and then you figure out what you're good at and you forge relationships and they identify what's going on in you, okay? And you discover your shape, the way that God gifted and made you and then you commit that area to God and you let him use you. That's what Luke did. Do you know how God has gifted you? If you do, have you dedicated that to God? You say, well, I I don't really know how to do that. Have Have you asked him? How to do that? Have you prayed about it? Have you made your ability or your gift known to others? You say, it's a pretty weird ability. Try us. We're a weird church. (laughs) You you might be stunned how God could use your ability around here. Uh, Ephesians 3.20, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. God's imagination is bigger than yours. I promise. And then we have a cautionary tale. The next name here in the list is a guy named Demas. Demas. This is the fly in the ointment. You can't tell that because Paul's words are rather congenial here, and that's because things are probably fine at this point with Demas. Uh, They're fine with Demas at the end of Philemon. He's referred there uh, as Paul's fellow worker. Uh, We know that Demas was a companion and a ministry partner of Paul for two years. He went through two imprisonments with Paul. And the principle in your notes from Demas is this guard your heart guard your heart you see there was something tragic that happened with demas in second timothy four paul writes to timothy he says do your best to come to me soon for demas in love with this present world has deserted me and gone on to thessalonica okay so he he abandoned paul why? Not not like Mark did. Mark was immature. Mark was was young in the faith, and he got homesick. He was a mama's boy. Whatever it was, this is something else. This is he was enticed by the things of the flesh. He was in love with the world. He he didn't just walk away from Paul. He walked away from the faith. Okay. Now I've seen some Demises in my ministry. You serve the Lord long enough, you will too. There are people who will disappoint you. There are people who will turn their back. They will seem vibrant. They will seem into it. They will seem uh, on fire. And then one day they will stun you, shock you, hurt you, and they will walk away from it all and not look back. And you will wonder why. And the list of reasons could be anything. I mean, did they drift because they're what we would call backslidden? Uh, Is it because they've allowed sin to creep in and take hold? And it's just a a stronghold in their life. Is it because they never knew Christ to begin with? Lord only knows. But we've got to learn from this man, Demas, just like we're learning from all the other names. We've got to learn to keep our eyes on Jesus and guard our heart. Guard your, your most precious possession as a Christian is your testimony. A truly born-again believer cannot lose their salvation, but you can royally mess up your testimony. And and it's not to say that God can't use you, restore you, and use you once again. He can, but there are some things that get lost in terms of your influence, your impact for the world. You can serve faithfully for decades, and then 15 minutes of pleasure can wreck that testimony and and really render you uh, inert spiritually for a time. And so we got to learn to guard our heart. We got to keep our eyes on Jesus. We got to stay in community, stay in accountability, stay in the word, all right? Paul starts to wind down, verse 15. He says, give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha, Nympha, and the church in her house. Now, this is the ESV. Uh, Nympha is a feminine name. Uh, This person is presented as a woman. You may have another translation that, that says nymphus. That's a masculine form. Uh, presented there as his house, uh, so there's not universal agreement. Is this a man or a woman? We really don't know, and honestly, it really doesn't matter because the issue here is not the gender of this individual; it's the character. And here's the principle in your notes: be generous. Be generous. This individual shared their personal property. They hosted the church at their house, as as churches tended to be in those days. They didn't have palatial buildings like this they met in homes this person hosted the church and there are people throughout scripture that open up their homes to the people of God for the purposes of ministry. Elijah, uh, Elisha interacted with the Shunammite widow. Uh, e- Elijah had the widow at Zarephath. Paul had Lydia, I think of Mary and Martha and Lazarus at Bethany and, and how they welcomed people. There was hospitality involved there. And this nympha does the same thing. Uh, all for the furtherance of the gospel and the, the, the teaching of God's word and the fellowship of the saints. And many of you do that. There are people in this church that, that open up their homes for life groups or for young people to come and hang out or for special events or you know somebody I think somebody's got a ranch they've had men's ministry events at all kinds of some of you invite people to come and stay in your home who are in a difficult position they're jobless they're homeless maybe they're dealing with substance abuse they just need a place to crash I know that happens in this church I affirm that that's the spirit that is embodied right here and then he goes on in 16 he talks about Uh, circulate this letter. This is how Paul's letters worked. And, you know, he mentions the Laodiceans and that's really the same letter as, as the one to the Ephesians, in case you're wondering. But then in verse 17, he says, and say to Archippus, Archippus, that's the pastor at the Colossian church, Archippus. He says, see that you fulfill the ministry that you've received in the Lord, underline fulfill, fulfill. Here's the principle in your notes. Be a good steward of your calling. See, you have a privilege and a responsibility as a Christian given from God to do the work of the ministry. He has created you in Christ Jesus to do good works. And so you fulfill that, you complete that, you give it all. You don't hold anything back. You're a good steward of the responsibility that you have. You're not not lax in that, you're not lazy with that you're intentional with that and you are generous with everything that you've got you unleash it for the lord um this whole list of people is like that they understand they are the product of the sacrifice of jesus christ we saw that theology laid down by paul in the beginning of the atonement that he died in our place he died for us we don't earn salvation it's a free gift if we earned it would we give all no we'd give just enough we'd figure out what the cost was and we'd give that much and no more but because this is a free gift and we're transformed by it we are a grateful people and out of love in our heart for the one who gave all for us we want to give all for him not to earn it but out of a sense of identity and duty and love and then paul closes it out verse 18 he says i paul I write this letter with my own hand, this greeting with my own hand. He wrote that because uh, he used in amanuensis, somebody would take dictation for Paul, but at the end, Paul would take the pen and he'd write. He, he, they knew that because he had a large scrawl. Scholars believe he, he had bad eyesight, so he'd write, write big. And he says this. He says, remember my chains. Why does he say that? Where is he? He's in prison. Remember my chains. Not just that I'm here, but remember why I'm here? Why is he there? The Jews considered him a threat because he was, he was a threat to the law. He undermined the law, the gospel of grace. The Romans thought he was a threat because he taught the supremacy of Christ and they thought that undermined Caesar. So he was hated by the religious and by the secular. And he's in jail. Despite that, he's not asking for anybody to come and break him out. He's not looking for a jail break. He just says, remember my chains. And then something crazy happens. The next line, he says, grace be with you. He's got the word chains and the word grace right next to each other. Bondage and freedom. They're right there. And here's the principle from Paul. Live as one set free. That's how we are to live. We're to be like Paul. He is in jail, but he understands he's a free man. He's a free man. Christ has set him free. It doesn't matter what chains they throw on him. It doesn't matter what walls are around him. He knows that the one who knows Jesus Christ, the one who has accepted that free gift of grace, though the world persecutes, though the world seeks to enslave us, we are not in fact in bondage, we are free in Jesus Christ. I hope that's you today. How do you line up with these people? This is the body of Christ. This is the design tonight. What adjustments need to be made in your life so that you can reflect his design for your place and your role in his bride? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the authority and the majesty and the wisdom of your word. May we take it, may we apply it in our life, and we pray this in Jesus' name as the body of Christ. Amen. Amen. I'm so glad that you've joined us tonight. God bless you all. You have a great weekend. We love you, and we'll see you next week.